We are now finishing up the book of Philippians. If you haven't been with us every week, we totally understand it's summer. But we have taken a very fast for this church journey through a book of the New Testament of Philippians. And today we have the final and concluding paragraphs. The title of this um, passage is God's Provision. But we have to realize where we've come from. Philippians, I like to think of the book as surprised by joy. There's a word in Philippians that's used quite often, and that's rejoice or joy or be joyful. And the first two words of our uh, passage is, I rejoiced. Paul uses other words, and we'll get into them, like partnership, that um, are within the whole fabric of this book. And Paul's attitude toward finances and provision is almost carefree. If I wasn't more involved in Scripture, I would say at this point, he's almost flip about money because money doesn't mean anything for him. His focus is not on finances. His focus is on heaven and eternal things. And in this situation, I think Paul is leading by example on how he looks at finances, how he looks at money. And we do have to look at money somewhat. But more than that, we have to look at how God provides in every situation. So the first question that I ask is kind of a continuation of um, what we've had in the last couple of weeks. And that is, where is our treasure? What do we value in our lives? What are we not willing to give up for Christ? Um, we'll just go back to chapter 3 and verse 8. He says, the value of knowing Christ. He says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. I have valued a lot of things in my life. As you know, photography was one of them. I valued it. And it's come to the point where God took it away from me. And I now value Christ more. It's easy to value things. It's harder, I think, it's to value Christ as the most in our lives. What do I value most? Second thing that Paul said in verse 12 of chapter 3 is that I've not obtained it. I'm not already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. He presses on his value of Christ, not because he wants to be more valuable to Christ, but because Christ has already made him valuable to himself. Put this in perspective. For me, 
I am valuable to Christ. Not because of anything I did, not because of who I am, but because Christ chose me before the foundation of the world to be his own. And that gives me immense value. So I am precious in his sight. You are precious in his sight, no matter what. So our value in life does not come from who we are, what we do, but who Christ is. Think about that. Meditate on that this week. I have for a while, and it blows me away. Us guys, when we get together and have conversations, we like to say, what do you do? Because we relate to each other on what we do. We are who we, what we do. I am not a security agent. That's not who I am, even though that's what I do. I am not a photographer. That's not who I am, even though that's part of what I do. I am not the husband of Deb, the father of children, and the grandfather of eight wonderful children, who I love very dearly. But that does not give me value. What gives me value is Christ. And so our message and our life needs to be Christ-focused. If you will, pardon the word, but we need to be Christocentric, Christ-centered, not egocentric, self-centered, but Christocentric in our lives. So we need to press on. And as we do that, we come to chapter 4, and what does he say? In 4.4, 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. How do we do that? Because our treasure is in Christ. It's easy to rejoice in the Lord when our circumstances pale in comparison to who Christ is. Our treasure is Christ. So we need to rejoice in the Lord. And because of that, we can be anxious for nothing. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Are you upset about something? Are you anxious about something? Are you concerned about something? Is something coming up this next week in your life or this next month? Or has something just happened? Let's not be anxious about it, but let's pray about it. If need be, we have scripture to back up. Let's share our request with others in our family, us. Share your request. We had a phone number on the board here a little while ago. Share it with the elders. We will pray. And I believe that prayer matters and prayer avails much. That's why this service today, you'll notice we spent some time in prayer. Because I think God is honored when we pray to him and when we re reflect our desire to be in communication with him always. And it's amazing to me 
how much he pays attention to us, even though we don't think he does. Sometimes I feel like that kid who says, Dad, Dad, can I have a new bike? 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 And the dad says, no, not now. You're only three. No, not now. You're only four. No, not now. You're only five. And on the sixth birthday, he gets the new bike. But the kid says, Dad, I need a new, I want, I need a new bike. See, all my friends have bikes. I need a new bike. And finally, the dad says, now you're ready for it. God answers prayer on his timetable, not on mine. I'm glad about that. Because he answered on my timetable, things would be really messed up. I don't know about you. <laughs> but my timetable is not always his. And so one of our prayers has to be, I want my timetable to be your timetable. So be anxious for nothing. And then, verse 8 of chapter 4, we finally read, having your mind dwell on things above. Whatever is tr true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. So as we are anxious about things, let's take our mind. Sometimes we physically have to grab it, but take whatever it is. Sometimes I write it out. What am I upset about? What am I anxious about? And I pray for them. And then we need to focus not on the things that we are anxious about, but on things of above. Things that are God-centered, Christocentric. With that as an introduction, we're going to talk a little bit about the gift that the Philippians have sent to Paul. I'm going to read verses 10 through 20 right now, because this talks about the gift that uh, Paul received. And then we're going to go through this verse by verse and try to understand what Paul is trying to get through here. He says, this is from the ESV, and I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I now know how to be brought low. I now know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you set me help for my needs once again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus, the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen means truly. This is truth. Veritas. 
This is the truth. Believe it. This paragraph this, that I've read, these 10 verses have so much in there. I don't know about you, but when I read it, there's a couple of verses that I memorized as a kid and they jump out at me. And I want to focus directly on those verses all the time and forget about the context and forget about what else is going on because I've learned those memory verses in Sunday school and they keep coming back. But we have to put it in context and when we do, we realize what Paul is really trying to say. But the first thing is the secret of contentment. Even before that, we said, I rejoice in the Lord now that you have revived your concern for me. The revival here is a horticultural term. It's like a flower that's kind of wilted. It hasn't had much water. And when you water it, what happens to the flower? It springs back. That's the kind of a concept that Paul is saying here. Your concern for me has revived. It's flourished. The flower is coming out. Um, your concern for me is now visibly, tangibly there with this gift that you have sent me. He says, I'm sure you have been concerned for me before, but you didn't have a way to get it to me. That's why he says you haven't had any opportunity to give it to me. Paul's in Rome, they're in Philippi, long distance, it's a long way to walk. But it finally got to him, and Paul is rejoicing in the fact that they have given him this gift. And then he says, I'm not speaking about being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. The I have learned here is, excuse me for being a little technical, but it's an aorist tense. It's a one time learned in the past. It's not a continual learning. I'm not continually learning how to be content. I have learned to be content. One time is a one-time event. Happened in the past. <clears throat> Many, and I agree with them, feel that Paul's one-time event was at his conversion. Before Paul was converted, he was a very wealthy Pharisee. Very high standing. Very much in favor of persecuting the church because he thought he was doing God's work. <clears throat> he had plenty. At his conversion, he basically gave it all up. But he was content. We, in our affluent America, need to feel the same contentment as a one time in the past, we're content. God provides, and I'm happy with that. So he says, I have been in every situation I am content. Now he uses the word I know twice. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. Paul in this next few verses is a series of contrasts and he's talking about the two extremes. Contrast, if you look in the verses, it says, <clears throat> verse 11, I have learned to be content. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Abundance 
and need, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That final verse we want to think of is, I can do all things. Does that mean I can run faster than a speeding locomotive, jump tall buildings in a single bound, reflect bullets off my chest? No. I can do all things does not turn us into Superman or Supergirl. Sorry. It does not do that. Putting this into context, Paul is saying, I can do all things, be fulfilled and be content in all things, be happy with what I have, be content to share and receive as need and supplies last because of Christ. It's not a strength that I can find from within me. If I am left to my own devices, I will be anxious about everything. I will be able to do nothing because I'm so concerned about everything that I will be unable to do anything. That doesn't mean I don't plan. That doesn't mean I don't think about the future. That doesn't mean that I get a paycheck and give it away. It means that I can do all things through Christ. I can pay my bills. If I have plenty, I give. If I'm in need, I receive. As we read in uh, 2 Corinthians, that Christ is glorified. I'm to the point in life where I'm thinking about retiring and we're thinking, oh, can we do this? I need a paycheck every week or every other week. How can, I, can we retire? Can we do this? Da, 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 all those things. And we have to say, we will be content with what God gives us. If we are just starting out and we are building our family and we have a couple of kids and they say that going the school supplies this year are more expensive than ever. I was reading in the Wall Street Journal how it's gone way up. And it's incredible to me. But at the same time, God supplies. We have jobs so that we can buy these things and so our children will get educated and be able to become citizens of our country as well as citizens of heaven and those two goals we work together for. Paul goes on. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. Verse 14. You yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, which no church entered partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. The word partnership he used back in chapter 1. I love the way that the book of Philippians is now coming back together again. If you go back to chapter 1, here it is. When you're up here, all of a sudden, everything sticks together. Nothing goes well. But in verse 5, he says, or verse 4, or I'll start with verse 3, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in my every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy 
There's that word joy again. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That word partnership is the word koinonia in Greek. It means fellowship. It means uh, giving of yourselves as well as finances as well as everything else. It's a... My dad used to say the word fellowship is two fellows in a boat in a ship rowing in the same direction. I always thought that was great because it kind of gives you the picture of what he's saying here. Um, your partnership with me in giving and receiving. Nobody did this as much as the Philippians did. If you remember way back in the introduction of this book, James did a great job and he talked about how the Philippian church started with a Macedonian call that we say, Paul was in Ephesians thinking of going one way and the Spirit stopped him and he had this vision to go to Macedonia where he immediately, after being there a few weeks, was put in jail and the Philippian jailer, because of his action, came to know Christ. And then we also read about Lydia, seller of purple, was there and Paul met with them as well. But there are people who from the very first meeting with Paul in Philippi that gave of themselves because of the gospel. And he calls them partnership. Even when he was sent to Thessalonica, shortly after that Paul left Philippi because he had to, he went to Thessalonica or Thessaloniki today. Um, it's only about 100 miles away. It's not very far. And yet the Philippians started sending him money even then, right away. So he is recalling their fellowship, their partnership in the gospel. We partnership with the Matthews. We are sending them money, partnering with them, helping them so that they can focus on doing their job with 18 campuses in Dubai? That's amazing. 18 OSUs <laughs> that they are working at. That's incredible. And we are partnering with them. We are partnershiping with the Masungas, helping them out when we can, when they need help in Nairobi. We've sent a team down there to help them. Lee has been down there twice. We are partnershiping with the GRN in Vietnam with the Thai people, the Red Thai people. I don't say it right, I'm sorry. But we send to unknown, unreached people groups the gospel. I think we'd like to do more of that. And we are looking for ways to partnership in the gospel even more. We are a church that gives, and I love that love that about you, love that about our church. We give, we have a budget, and we give beyond the budget so that we can partnership with more people, and more missionaries. Because when you think about partnershiping with Paul, what was Paul's mission? We have to think about mission. Paul's mission was to aggressively advance the gospel as much as he possibly could. This got him into trouble. He was not socially and politically correct when he did this. Because of that, he was beaten with rods. He was on ships that became shipwrecked. 
He was bitten by a snake and he shook it off and he was fine. And because of that, God used it to bring people to Christ. He was called a God by some people and afterward he said, I'm not a God, they beat him up with sticks and stones. He was not politically correct, but he was advancing the gospel aggressively in his day and time. And the Philippians bought into that mission. We have a mission here. And I would like to see us change it a little bit to use that word, aggressively advancing the gospel. It may or may not happen. But we are to advance the gospel, not only through the building up of ourselves, but to advance the gospel here in Columbus, Ohio. There's coming up a seminar on how to witness to mission or to uh, Muslims. It's a way to advance the gospel. We are going to be praying and looking and searching for ways for us to get involved in other ways of advancing the gospel in the next few months. What does that mean to you personally? It means that you may have to give up some of your free time. I use that word in quotes because nobody has free time. We all have projects and homes and family and sports and things that we like to do. It'll also mean us giving up of our finances that we have given to the church we will use. Or it may mean more. I don't know what sacrifices will be called upon by you, for you, but we have to think in terms of being koinonia, fellowshipping and partnering with the gospel. Because of this, we have to have the other piece of this puzzle. Partnershiping in the gospel also reflects God's faithfulness. Not that I seek the gift, verse 17, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more, and I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. I seek the gift that advances to your credit, to me means that when we give of our financial means to God, He notices. So that we don't speak much about heaven, and I think we should speak more often of it because it's full in the New Testament. There's a lot of, lot of um, references to it. We are credited with things that we do on earth in heaven. It's good to have a bank account so that you can retire and live without a job. I would say carefree, but you know, we are never carefree, even though we are anxious for nothing. Um, but it's better to have a larger bank account in heaven, because that's the one that's going to last. How long is retirement? Depends upon when you retire and when you pass away, 20, 30 years maybe. How long is our time in heaven? As the song says, when we've been there 10,000 years, it'll seem like a minute. You know, it's eternity. Uh, and if you can take infinity squared, that would be it. And that's an impossibility. 
Just like you can't square zero, you can't square infinity. Because um, infinity plus one is still infinity. So when we've been there forever, that is the credit that Christ has given us, the abundance that we will have in heaven. And our focus needs to be not on my job today, which I'll be going to in 25 minutes, <laughs> but our focus is not on the day-to-day. -day. It's on, on the eternal consequences of what we do. And that's what Paul is getting at. That's the, the Philippine, Philippians, let's get it out right, the Philippians have given gifts constantly to Paul. And these gifts are to their credit, not just now in his gratitude, but to their credit in heaven. I think that's amazing. I think that's a motivation for us to rethink how we live here. And maybe you've already done that. You're probably way ahead of me. But the, the gifts and sacrifices are acceptable and pleasing to God. And then, verse 19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. This verse, I think, has been misinterpreted, misused in Christianity, Christianity in quotes, uh, for a long period of time. It's used by the prosperity people to say that God wants you to be rich and he's going to supply everything you want or do. And if you want a Cadillac, you just have to pray for it and God will give you a Cadillac. I don't know why they use the word Cadillac. But anyways, um, that's not what it says. It says that my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. First of all, the word is need, not want. Second of all, the word is in context because of the sacrifice they made. Paul is saying, you may have made a sacrifice that hurt you financially, but God's still going to supply your need just like he's supplying mine. I'm going to give you a personal example here, and my wife doesn't know I'm going to use this, but that's okay. I have had two very old cars. They're 2001s. And on one day, both cars died. The Buick was in Meyer's parking lot. That bought some groceries and couldn't get it started. It just died. I was on my way home. 9 o'clock at night, I get off, and she was doing it late enough so that the ice cream didn't melt when I came to pick her up. But I got my car home, and the brakes on my car were shot. So we put the groceries away. I called my mechanic up. My car was shot. Her car was somewhere else and dead. The mechanic came and took my car. It was drivable, barely, and he replaced the brakes. Then we started working on the Buick. And the Buick, we first of all replaced the battery. I don't, I don't know if you've repriced batteries for a car lately. They start out at $90 and go to $150. They're not cheap anymore. They used to be 60 bucks. What happened to the $60 good battery? I don't know. But so we replaced the battery. The car started, we got it home, and it died on the way. 
So we know the perpetual problem we have with the Buick was still there. It wasn't the battery. We played around with the fuel pump because we had replaced the fuel filter earlier. And it wasn't the fuel pump. We replaced the coils and the base of the coils. It wasn't the coils. We replaced a couple of relays. It wasn't the relays. The car is still at the mechanics. And it's, we think we got another possibility. But you see, in all of this, it's very frustrating because the car was driven and died, and we couldn't trust that car very much. The point is, I needed a car, so I started praying, God, I need a car because my wife is very valuable and trust. I, I, I love her very much, and I don't want her to be killed in a car accident because that car dies when you're just driving down the road. We need a car. And if you don't mind, I'd like a Nissan Altima. I bought a black one or a blue one and uh, all this stuff. Well, my son had a car in his garage when she was in Hastings, Nebraska. And uh, he wasn't driving it, hasn't driven it for a long time. He says, why don't you buy my car from me? It was a Nissan, not quite an Altima, it was a Versa. But my wife got in it and said, this is a cool car, I really like this. And uh, God supplied our need. It's blue, dark blue, midnight blue. The specific way in which God supplied our need. I prayed, I was concerned, God supplied. It was according to his riches because I had looked at Ultimus, I had looked at cars. I couldn't afford a car. There's no way. It didn't work with my financial plan. But God supplied because it was a need. And we have a car that I can now trust that my wife can drive and not worry about it. I am so grateful for it. Every time now I see this car, I think of God's provision. And now that I've shared the story, every time you see a car, you're going to think of God's provision too, I hope. Because what we are doing here is trying to give God the glory for the ways in which he provides for our needs. He provides according to his riches and glory. He provides according to our ability because we are faithful to him and our finances and our sacrifice. He provides for the Philippians. We read later where the Philippians needed help because they were in a drought and had problems and the rest of the churches took up a collection at the end of Paul's life and brought it to them. Paul is not, this is a side here, another side, Paul is not putting forward what Karl Marx wanted him to put forward and that's communism. He's not saying that everybody should make the same amount of money. He's not saying that everybody should have the same kind of job and everybody should eat the same food and drive the same car and all that stuff. What he is putting forward is a fairness that if we have extra, we share with those in need. And when those in need have extra and we have a need, it's transferred back. We share with those missionaries. We partnership with them because they have a need. 
I love the Masungas because they say we don't have a need right now. Hold the money, and when we have a need, we'll let you know, and we'll put a project together for them. I love that. We communicate with them, probably not as often as we should, but often, trying to ask the hard questions about finances and money that we Christians don't like to talk about so that we can supply needs if they are needed, if, where, they, where they pop up. And then Paul says something totally amazing to me. He says, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. That's tacked in. Where did this come from? Well, it came from God supplying all our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. We're talking about worship. How to give God glory. This is, um, Thomas Watson has a commentary on the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and this is from that. We live for the glory of God. The first is to admire him. These four points I read, I got them from Tim Challies, he's a blogger, and I thought this was amazing. Ways to worship God. First, admire God. What has he done for you? How, how awesome is God? We, we sang about this song in I Surrender All. He took our guilt and nailed it to a tree. Uh, he redeemed us. He saved us. He chose us. He provides for us. He is awesome. We admire him. Second is to worship him, again, giving him glory for the things he has done, for the fact that he made a covenant with us, chosen us before the foundation of the world. And I, in my pettiness, think of other things, worry about how I'll look, how, what I'll say, how this message will come across. It needs to be for God's glory. Thirdly is to obey him. When we see an instruction, when we receive an idea from him, do it. It's not only just the written word that we have plenty of instructions to obey, but it's listening to the spirit that is within you. And Deb and I are getting better and better at this. When we hear something, we should, we should pray for that. Let's do it now. Our daughter is on the phone, pray for me. Okay, let's pray now on the phone. When we talk to people, we want to say, and we don't always, when they say, pray for me, we say, let's pray now. Let's fulfill that request as soon as possible. Let's fulfill that debt, if I can use that term, for each other as soon as possible. And then the last is delight in him. This one takes a while for me to get my mind around. Delighting in God. Loving God. I have learned to say in my prayers, God, I love you. By saying that, the emotions follow. For the longest time, I studied the Bible. I, loved, I knew God. I knew I should love God, so I said I loved God. But are the emotions really there? Love is an emotion. 
It's also an act of the will. And sometimes the emotions follow the will. With Deb, it was the emotions preceded the will. <laughs> but sometimes it's the other way around. Emotions can follow the will. Do you love God? Do you love God more than your wife? In the Gospels we read, you must hate your father, you must hate your mother, you must hate your children. And that's a comparative statement compared to the way you love me. My love for Deb is great, but it looks like hate compared to my love for God. Is that a true statement? Sometimes I don't think so. So loving God means delighting in him, delighting in his word. Delighting in his word means I'm constantly reading it, constantly meditating on it. Going back to uh, Tom's sermon, thinking about anything worthy of praise, anything commendable, anything excellent, what is lovely, what is pure, what is just, what is honorable, what is true, dwelling on the Word of God. That's how we do that. So, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, the final greetings, verse 21 through 23. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those in Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. First thing that pops up to me is Caesar's household. The Caesar we're talking about here is Nero. Don't forget that. He's the guy that used Christians for torches in his parties at night. Um, if you want a good book to read that talks about what he did, read Covadis. It's an amazing story. It takes place about the time of Nero, and it's about the Christians and how they lived and the Caesar's household. It's fiction, but you can see how Caesar's household came to know the Lord through Christ. And if you take this back to, what is it, chapter is it two? where Paul says, what has become these chains, because of these chains, is become known everywhere, and even those, anyways, it's a Praetorian guard. The special guard that guards Paul knew Christ, came to know Christ. And Caesar's household means not Caesar himself or even the royal family, but those who work there, those who are part of the household, knew Christ, and they sent their greetings to the Philippian saints. Think about this. It would mean much to the Philippians because they are a Roman colony. If you remember what James said about Philippi, it's a Roman colony. It's very prominent in the area. It's ahead of the territory and uh, having linked to Caesar is very important to the social people of those, that time. And now Paul says, even those in Caesar's household greet you. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. We are reasonably good at this. 
at the end of the service. I can't partake in that anymore. But be sure and do continue that. Greet every saint. Not just your friends, but every saint. Lee used to say, love on each other. I like that. Be sure we love on each other. Greet every saint. The brothers who are with me greet you. That would be see Timothy, Titus, Epaphroditus is coming back, and others. We know that it was Timothy because the beginning of the verse 1 says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to the saints in Christ Jesus. So the end of the book, the beginning of the book, is now being tied together. <laughs> to me, it's kind of neat the way that Paul ties it together this way. He greets them at the beginning. He greets them at the end. Then the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I don't know how to say this even any more than that. The unmerited favor of what Christ has done be with your spirit. Not the unrest, but the calmness. Not the um, anxiety, but what Christ has done is what is to be with our spirit. You know, God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. He provides. He puts us in the crucible of his grace. And I don't know about you, but I don't like the word crucible in there. Because crucible is a testing ground. It determines what you are made of, your metal. But it's his grace that does that. Does he do that to show him what we are made of? I don't think so. I think he does that to show us what we are made of. So what are you made of? Where is your thoughts? Where do you, what do you think of? Do we admire God, worship him, obey him, delight in him? I can tell you I don't all the time. I'm working on it. Hopefully you are too. So Philippians is a great book. Talks about joy. Talks about partnership. Talks about following Christ's example. Christ's humility. Christ's um, the gospel. I can't think of a better book to have spent on the summer. Hopefully you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Next week, Lee will be back here sharing things uh, from his um, sabbatical, sharing things what he has learned, um, and taking us, I'm not sure where, <laughs> but we'll let him decide that. And I look forward to that, and I look forward to seeing you again next week. Let's close in a word of prayer, and then we'll get started with the clothes.